Pastor John will be preaching this morning from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. James 4, 1 through 10. What causes wars and what causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I want to try to answer three questions about abortion this morning. One, what is happening in our culture? Two, why is it happening? And three, how should we respond to this state of affairs? First, what is happening? You can come at that question from at least four different angles. Let me try. The first one would be legal and historical. In 1847, when the American Medical Association was founded, abortion, up until the time of what they called quickening in those days, was fairly common. And then over the next 60 years, through the active work of the American Medical Association, the anti-obscenity people, and ironically, the feminists, Abortion became illegal in every state by 1900. And then, of course, as everybody here knows, the major act of the court by which that has been reversed was in 1973, January 22, which is why this Sunday is so special. The ruling was given in Roe versus Wade that four things. One, no state may make laws regulating abortion during the first three months of pregnancy, except to provide that it be done safely by physicians. Second, laws regulating abortion between the third month and the time of viability are constitutional only if they are aimed at safeguarding the health of the mothers. Third, Laws relating to the time of viability 
to the end of the pregnancy may not prevent abortion if it is to preserve the life and health of the mother. So abortion may only be outlawed in cases where it is not needed to enhance the life and health of the mother. And then health, and this is the key rub for the third trimester, health is defined like this, including, quote, all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the patient, end quote. And then July 1st, 1976, two other dimensions were added to the ruling, namely that abortions of minor daughters can be performed without the knowledge and consent of parents, and a woman may receive an abortion without the knowledge and consent of the baby's father. So in effect, in our land today, abortions are legal up until birth, provided evidence can be given that the birth or the uh, pregnancy will bring uh, excessive burden or stress on the well-being of the mother. That's the first way to answer the question, what's going on? Here's a second way. Leave behind the, the statistics of 20 million abortions in the last 14 years and the legal dimensions, and let's ask, what happens when a woman gets an abortion? What's it like? Well, I'm sure it's different for each one, but here's one testimony that I take from the Minneapolis Tribune. A woman wrote an article about her visit to a local clinic. Though I would march myself into blisters for a woman's right to exercise the option of motherhood, I discovered there in the waiting room that I was not the modern woman I thought I was. When my name was called, my body felt so heavy that the nurse had to help me into the examining room. I waited for my husband to burst through the door and yell, Stop! But of course he didn't. I concentrated on three black spots on the acoustic ceiling until they grew in size to the shape of saucers while the doctor swabbed my insides with antiseptic. You're going to feel a burning sensation now, he said, injecting Novocaine into the neck of the womb. The pain was swift and severe, and I twisted to get away from him. He was hurting my baby, I reasoned, and the black saucers quivered in the air. Stop, I cried. Please stop. He shook his head, busy with his equipment. It's too late to stop now, he said. It'll just take a few more seconds. What good sports we women are, and how obedient. Physically, the pain passed even before the hum of the machine signals that the vacuuming of my uterus was completed. My baby sucked up like ashes after a cocktail party. Ten minutes start to finish, and I was back on the arm of the nurse. There were 12 beds in the recovery room. Each one had a gaily flowered draw sheet and soft green or blue thermal blanket. It was all very feminine. Lying on these beds for an hour or more were the shocked victims of their sex life, their full wombs now stripped clean, their futures less encumbered. Finally then, it was time for me to leave. My husband was slumped in the waiting room, clutching a single yellow rose wrapped in a wet paper towel stuffed into a baggie. We didn't talk all the way home. My husband and I are back to planning our summer vacation now and his career switch. It certainly does make more sense not to have a baby right now. 
We say that to each other all the time. But I have this ghost now, a very little ghost that only appears when I'm seeing something beautiful, like the full moon on the ocean last weekend. And the baby waves at me, and I wave at the baby. Of course we have room, I cry to the ghost. Of course we do, end quote. So that's the second way you can describe what goes on in America today to the tune of one and a half million per year. A third way to answer the question, what's going on in America today, is to ask whether this woman is not overly sentimental. I mean, really, a little ghost, come on now. To ask the question, um, ghosts remind us of people, and surely for this woman, what was aborted wasn't anything resembling a person. So that would be the third question to ask. What what did it resemble? Let's just suppose that she missed her first period. That happens. She didn't check. And then she missed her second period. And so she gets the test and she, she finds out she's pregnant. She sits down with her husband at the breakfast table and uh, they discuss it. And so they decide to have an abortion. Now it's seven, eight weeks The baby is, and uh, she comes to the clinic. What's this baby like? Here's a description from Dr. Paul Rockwell of Troy, New York. Eleven years ago, he says, while giving an anesthetic for a ruptured ectopic pregnancy at two months gestation, I was handed what I believed was the smallest living human ever seen. Within the sack was a tiny human male swimming extremely vigorously in the amniotic fluid. This tiny human was perfectly developed with long tapering fingers, feet and toes, was almost transparent as regards to the skin, and the delicate arteries and veins were prominent to the ends of the fingers. The baby was extremely alive and swam about the sack approximately one time per second with a natural swimmer's stroke. It's my opinion that if the lawmakers and people realized that very vigorous life is present, it is possible that abortion would be found more objectionable than euthanasia. In other words, the third thing we can say about what's happening is that contemporary medical technology has made it possible for any man or any woman who wants to to know exactly what's happening during the abortion. In this case, a little being not quite as long as your little finger with fingers and arms and legs and toes and eyes and a forehead and a chin uh, and a body cavity and a heart that's been beating for over a month is uh, sucked out, cut up in pieces. And you don't have to have any question anymore to know what's happening, if you want to know what's happening. So that's the third way of describing what's going on. A fourth way, and perhaps the most important way of describing what's going on, is to ask whether or not the Bible gives us a perspective on this. Does the Bible describe what's happening in the womb and give it any particular um, value? I just want to show you two texts that uh, were not read yet. One's very familiar, one is less familiar and draw out some inferences from them. The first is Psalm 139, verse 13. The whole paragraph is relevant to 
the pre-birth life of child. But verse 13 is the only one we'll look at to draw out the one point that I'm focusing on this morning here. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, Thou didst form my inward parts. This is David praising God for his creative work in the womb. Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, the one point that I think we can draw out of that text is that the formation of life in the womb is the work of God. Is that too much to draw out of that text? The formation of life in the womb is the work of God. Secondly, I think we can go further and say it is not a mechanical or distant work of God. As though he had just set uh, in motion some physical laws and then stood way off a trillion miles away in heaven and, and was indifferent towards the functioning of those laws. Rather, the image is used of knitting or weaving. So God is pictured as the one who is right there in the womb, putting together the pieces of this little infant, weaving and knitting the baby together. A very personal activity that a person who's knitting gets involved in. So I would define uh, this period then in the life of the womb as uh, the knitting of a human being in the image of God, unlike any other creature in the universe. Now, let's go to Job. It's just one book back in your Bible. Job chapter 31. Job in in chapter 31, in these verses we'll look at, verses 13 to 15, is protesting that he's innocent of having uh, failed to meet the needs of his servants when they are uh, coming to him with a claim against him, a complaint. And what I want you to see here is the way he argues in verse 15. So we need to see it in context. Let's read 13, 14, and 15. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb. Now notice the logic of verse 15. Verse 15 is giving the reason for why Job would be without excuse if he treated his slave as subhuman or as less than equal as a human. And the reason he gives is not that they were born in a certain family, one free, one slave, or both free, nor is the point at all that one had perhaps a freed woman for a mother or a a bondwoman for a mother. That's quite beside the point. The, The one thing that Job focuses on is who is at work in the womb. God, the same God, was at work fashioning, he says, the slave, infant, fetus, and the same God was at work fashioning knitting the Job fetus. And he reasons from that that he better not mistreat this person since God was at work in the womb fashioning them just like he was himself. So, Psalm 139 
And Job 31, very simply, make the point that the mother is not the primary nurturer during the period of gestation. God is. Okay? The mother is not the primary nurturer while this child is in her womb. She's important. She's indispensable. But God, from a biblical standpoint, is the one who is knitting the life together. That's the point of these verses. Mothers and fathers can contribute a little impersonal sperm and a little impersonal egg, which doesn't by itself make personhood. Only God can make a person. When the scripture emphasizes that God is the main nurturer, shaper, knitter, former, fashioner, what we are to see is that what's going on in the womb during this period is the unique divine work of God fashioning personhood. Because only God can make a person. And when he's fashioning a human, he's fashioning a person. Now, we can argue till doomsday about when this little child becomes a whole, legal, full person. Some will say at conception. Some will say at quickening. And some will say at viability. And some will say at birth. And others will say 10 or 12 days after birth when certain key changes take place. And others, I've read article in Christian Century, will argue that it's only a, a human when it, in the first or second year, begins to gain some reasoning powers. I doubt that there'll ever be any consensus on that issue of when this little emerging being becomes a person. But I think there's something of immense importance we can say about what's happening in the womb on the basis of these texts. What is happening in the womb from conception to birth is the divine, special, unique work of God Almighty fashioning and knitting personhood. And only God will ever know in this age when and how the creation of an eternal, everlasting soul relates to or is involved in or woven together with the making of a body. No scientist will ever be able to answer that question. Only God can make souls that last forever as personal beings and were not and will be forever. Only God can do that. And what I can affirm, I think, on the basis of Scripture is that the biblical emphasis is that when a child is conceived in the womb, God kicks in in a unique and special, divine, person-forming way. And so the definition of these nine months is God at work. Beware. Caution. God at work. Making personhood. That's the sign that ought to be draped over every 
womb. Therefore, to the degree that you and I recognize a unique value, even in fallen personhood, value because of the capacity of men and women to consciously praise and obey God, which no other creature can. To the degree that you recognize that unique value, to that degree, will you shriek or shrink back in horror and reverence and fear from assaulting the divine, unique work of God in the womb making personhood. I don't think we have to answer the question when this baby fulfills some definition of law in order to say God Almighty has taken responsibility during these months to make personhood. And when God is engaged in the making of a person, beware to a creature to kick in and destroy what God has knit together. So I hope that the fourth answer to this question is maybe taking us a step beyond the impasse, the legal impasse of the definition of personhood. At least it should for Christians. Second question. Why is it happening? To the tune of one and a half million a year on demand. Why is it happening in our culture? And I take you now to James chapter 4 for one answer. I'm sure it's not the only answer or the whole answer. But as far as I can tell, it's the most penetrating answer that I've been able to find. I'm going to use the punctuation of the Revised Standard Version and the New American Standard Version. If you have an NIV, it will read differently. I hope you can just meditate on the clauses to see whether or not you think this logic here is right. The Revised Standard Version in NASB say in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you kill. Desire what today? More financial security? More leisure? More education? Unrestrained teenage sex activity? Continued? More career options? Perhaps the avoidance of a child who may have a handicap? Perhaps just less hassle for the next 18 years. Or if you've got four kids, 29 years. 29 years to build your life around a creature that you could have avoided. Then comes the pregnancy. Here are the list of desires. Now comes the pregnancy. What happens? A divine work begins in the womb of knitting personhood. The result, desires are threatened. This child is going to cost money. This child is going to cramp 
my travel plans and my leisure. This child might keep me out of school for a while. This child might hinder my career advancement. This child might consume thousands of hours, especially if he's handicapped. This child just is going to limit my freedom in a hundred ways for the next 18 years. You desire, and now, because of the pregnancy, you cannot have. James says, so you kill. We kill marriages. We kill children. Because they cut across our desires. They stand in the way of our unencumbered self-enhancement. And self-enhancement, you know, is God in America today. Self-enhancement and self-advancement is God. Therefore, this God at work knitting personhood in my womb, is not God. And to intrude upon His sanctuary and work and destroy what He is knitting together into personhood is not ignominy, is not sacrilege. It is obedience to the God of self who reigns in American culture. That is the fundamental root of the wave of abortion on demand in this country. We can go further. Alongside and behind the passions that get frustrated, that cause us to break out in divorce and in abortion, is Satan. It is Satan's agenda. Jesus calls Satan a murderer from the beginning in John 8. We just read as a family this morning something I'd never seen in this light, namely the story of the Gadarene demoniac. And it hit me for the first time where this Gadarene demoniac full of thousands of demons from hell was living. Where was he living? In the graveyard. Why? That's home for Satan. And then what happened when he got delivered to these demons? What happened to these swine? They killed themselves. Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He has the power of death, according to Hebrews 2.14. He abides in death. He loves death. He cultivates death. Now, there is a close connection between Satan's work and our love of self-enhancement. And it's found in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, we were once following the course of this age, following the prince of the power of the air. So here we are, following, just grooving in on Satan and his force and power and agenda in the world. And then the very next verse says, and we were walking according to our passions and the desires of mind and body. They are like this. The desires of worldly passions or the desires of worldly self-enhancement and the following of Satan are not two different things in the sons of disobedience. They are one. 
And so beneath this massive movement of indifference and cavalier destruction of the knitting together of personhood in the womb is Satan and fallen humanity in one. I wonder how many of you remember Steve Calvin. Steve Calvin was a member of our church, sang in the choir, was one of my best students uh, over at uh, Bethel. I think you were in the same class with him. Uh, I love Steve. He's a brilliant thinker. He was called to Tucson, and uh, he is now holding a faculty position at the University of Arizona. He works in a Hispanic HMO. He works in a a crisis pregnancy center on the side. He is a passionate, loving, humble, articulate enemy of abortion on demand as a physician. And he wrote me a letter a couple of years ago, and I want to quote you a paragraph from it. I'm going to drop out the name of the book and the name of the author so as not to get him into any trouble. And here's what he said. To better know the opposition, I checked out the book, blank, by blank, 1983, the premier text on the medical, social, and logistical aspects of this grisly business. After two days of reading and analysis, I'm convinced we are dealing here with forces of spiritual darkness that enslave men's minds. And then he went on and gave me evidences of that from the incredible opinions of these physicians in this authoritative work on abortion. Therefore, James says here in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So what does that teach us? That teaches us that the heart of a man or a woman which is fully submitted. That's not a popular word today. Neither among men or women. Subjected or submitted to the authority of God. The heart that is fully subjected to the authority of God will get power from God. You see that in verse 6? He gives more grace. More than what? Well, more than you started with in the Christian life and more than you think you can have. So many people get divorced and so many people get abortions because they don't think they can get enough grace to live with the baby or with the spouse. And this text says God gives more grace Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Power comes. Power comes to those who are submitted and are not enslaved to the God of self-enhancement. The reason abortion abounds today is because we are not submitted as a society to the authority of our Creator We are in love with the God of self-enhancement. We are in step with the God of this world. And therefore, we will kill anything legally that stands in our way to self-enhancement. That is the mood of our culture. It infiltrates the church in incredible ways. That's why the situation exists fundamentally as I see it. Last question. What should we do? What should our response be? Five brief pieces of admonition. Number one, just be a Christian where you are. 
Draw near to God and let Him draw near to you. Resist the devil in faith. Let the grace of God flow into your minds, not merely freeing you from the slavery to the desires whose frustration causes you to kill. But more importantly, the grace which comes into your mind and transforms the desires so that you can become a butterfly and not be inhibited by the gravity of worldly desires. You can have desires that cause you to delight in the power of grace, enabling you to carry this baby, bring up this child, postpone your education, not have the career advancement, and know that God is smiling upon that choice and experiencing the grace and joy of His approval. Second, pray for the awakening of the churches in revival. It'll never be changed without revival. Pray that the churches would be awakened to the privilege and joy and beauty of knowing, being loved by, being forgiven by, being accepted by the Creator of the universe. Let that overflow for the evangelization and the reformation of this city, this nation, and this world. Pray for that. Number three, use your imagination. Lives will not be saved. God will not be honored unless Christian people perform an act of sustained and sympathetic imagination. There is such a thing as a cultural stupor that comes over a people. It happened in Nazi Germany. I lived 12 miles from Dachau for three years. I went out again and again to this concentration camp and took everybody that came to Munich when I was there through it. You ask people, why? Why did you do something or say something? Dachau was not one of the places where they burned. They just did experiments. And they got pictures of these incredible experiments that they did on people because they didn't believe they were people. Why? Answer, why? it was... I mean, the rumors were so horrendous. The, the, the powers were so great. We were so helpless. There was no way we could even believe it was happening. And that's exactly the same thing we're threatened with today. It is so big. It is so horrendous that without a sustained act of imagination, we will say to ourselves, it can't be wrong for me to just let it go. It can't be wrong. I mean, it's just too big. I'm so little. It can't be wrong. For me to just go on with my life the way it is. And what I mean by a sustained act of sympathetic imagination is to simply take, and I didn't put this on the bulletin board because I, I, I just thought it was in bad taste, but you can get pictures like this of how little children look after each of the four different kinds of abortion. And then let that be your imagination for a while. That every time a little inch and a half, little swimming baby with hands and and arms and legs is aborted, it's killed, it's cut in half, it's squashed, it's burned, it's, it's smothered, it's poisoned. And this is not rhetoric. It's the rhetoric that conceals the facts. The facts are that every time a little eight-week-old baby is aborted, it's smushed. And if you held it in front of its mother's eyes and said, you do it, she wouldn't, never. And she wouldn't let you do it or anybody else, not in front of her eyes. You must use your imagination while our culture insists on concealing reality and hiding it in a fog 
of rhetoric. Number four, support alternatives to abortion for the women who will find it very hard to carry the baby to term. And I just here point you to our table in the hallway where some of our women will be for the New Life Homes Crisis Pregnancy Center. Many of you have been involved in foster care and other ways. Get the literature you want out there. Find out how you can get involved. And finally, I close with this. Use your democratic privileges of representation and demonstration and free speech to push for legal protection for the unborn. Now, this is a sicky wicket. What form should the legal protection take? Let me just try to answer one argument here, and, and then I'll stop. The most powerful argument I know of that would oppose legal enactments for the protection of the unborn is that when you enact laws where there is massive social disagreement in a culture, it's tyranny. In other words, laws without broad social consensus is tantamount to tyranny. Now, what do we make of that argument? The way I've thought about it is this. I went back 130 years to the Dred Scott versus Stanford case, March 6, 1857. Dred Scott was a black slave. He had gotten out of his territory into a free territory. The territory of that land said, if you live here, you're free. And he argued with the Supreme Court, I'm a free man because I was in that uh, territory. The court struck it down. And they passed a ruling that said no territorial Congress, no act of federal Congress may make laws preventing or banning slavery. The fundamental argument given by the justices on March 6 was slaves are the property of their masters. And we have laws regulating property. They do not have full personal status under the Constitution of the United States. Now, that is a remarkable correlation to what's happened today in Roe versus Wade. Because there's a law now from the Supreme Court justices that says no state can enact laws protecting the unborn. Why? Because they are basically the property of their mother or the tissue of their mother. And she has sovereign rights over this life. Now, here's the connection. The consensus in 1857 was totally non-existent. Our land was split right down the middle on this issue, and it was nevertheless so fundamental that we killed one-half million adults to get it settled. We went to war over this issue and this lack of consensus. And under the Lincoln administration, Dred Scott was reversed. And today, 130 years later, there is consensus. And we look back upon our great-grandfathers and say, why? Why? And so I simply close by holding out this possibility in prayer. Could it not be that under the grace of God, through the persevering obedience of God's people, in piety and prayer and political pressure, that within a hundred years, in the next decades, there could emerge a consensus for life in this land so that our great-grandchildren 
or maybe grandchildren would look back with utter dismay upon our generation as to how we could cut to pieces millions of little growing people in the wombs of their mothers. Social transformation has happened before. It happened in England under Wilberforce, who was a one-issue man for 20 years. And it happened in this land under the administration of Lincoln. It can happen again by the grace of God. My prayer is that he will help you and me be a part of that solution. Shall we stand for prayer? Almighty God and very merciful Heavenly Father, on behalf of myself and this people and our land, I plead for forgiveness and for cleansing from the incredible audacity and sin of assaulting your unique, divine, person-forming work in the womb. O God in heaven, have mercy upon us, I pray, and stir us up to act, to pray, that there might emerge a consensus for life in our land, that we might shrink back from the irreverent and sacrilegious act of assaulting your prerogatives as the creator of personhood. And Lord, I pray that when we gather here at the church on Thursday at 1130, before we go in a van and in caravan over to the Capitol for the March for Life, that you'd put it in the heart of many of these people here today to join us.